really, the bottom line is that we are really failing women in this country. In the United States, our maternal mortality rates are higher than any other developed country. And mental health conditions are a main driver of those deaths via suicide and drug overdose. And, and in fact, there are some states where suicide and drug overdose combine to be the leading cause of maternal mortality in the postnatal year. And you know, one of the things that we've learned is through kind of a retrospective analysis of these deaths um, by suicide and drug overdose is that 100% of those deaths were preventable. And they were preventable by better screening, identification, appropriate assessments, and getting women to appropriate treatment. And so that's essentially what this tool was developed to do. And so if this tool is working in that way and that this tool works that way, we should have it in the hands of every pregnant and postpartum woman in this country. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. You found the place where we dive into the origins of the next big things. We're talking about the who, why, and how of ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Dr. Jesse. Good morning, Kevin. How are you today? I'm doing so well. You are the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, and we're going to be talking a lot about innovations here in this podcast. And we're super stoked to get this thing going because I think there's a lot of great content out there in this MUSC community, the stuff that people need to know about. Yeah, I agree. I think MUSC has a tremendous amount to offer, and there are stories that really need to be told, and the impact of the creative problem solving that's going on here that's really right. needs to be. And that is your neighborhood, huh? That is my neighborhood. Well, today we are diving into a particular set of challenges facing women who are pregnant and then into their postpartum year. We're going to be talking with Dr. Connie Gill. She's the Director of Women's Reproductive Behavioral Health. She's a professor of the Department of Psychiatry, Behavioral Sciences, and OBGYN. Jesse, I know you're a big fan of Dr. Gill and her work. Why, why did you choose her for our first guest? I chose Connie because I think that the work that she's doing is really, really important. There's such a huge unmet clinical need for uh, the work that she's doing. And then in addition to that, I think her solution is like just beautifully, simply elegant. I think sometimes when we think about innovation, we think it has to be super high tech and very complex. And and quite honestly, sometimes the more simple the solution is, the better it is and the better engaging it is. And I think that the work that Connie is doing is just really, really illustrative of how sometimes just stepping back and taking a really sort of patient-first approach in a simple fashion can have really meaningful impacts for, for those that we're trying to help. I think it's a perfect example of innovation right down on the street level. So, well, let's dive in. So, Kevin, you know, in addition to these conditions being incredibly common, they carry a very significant morbidity and mortality, and particularly morbidity on women's health and children's development. Our conversation started with a phone call from Dr. Gill. As Jesse and I were putting together this first episode, we wanted to get a clear overview of the subject matter, and Connie was glad to call in and share some insights. So, for example, when women are experiencing uh, major depression or anxiety problems or substance use issues or intimate partner violence, through pregnancy, um, they tend to have much more unhealthy pregnancies. They are much more likely to have preterm births and have babies that are born at low birth weights. In the postpartum period, they're much less likely to initiate breastfeeding, and we see a much higher rate of breakup with their partner or separation or divorce. 
And, and I think some of the most compelling data is around some of the long-term outcomes around child, children's development. What we find is that if mom is suffering from moderate to severe postpartum depression or anxiety in that postpartum year, those children are three to four times more likely to have behavioral problems. They're twice as likely to have academic problems, which we see around middle school, and seven times more likely to have depression during adolescence. So this, this exposure to this disease during this really critical window of time is having a huge impact on children's development and, and obviously women's health. So, you know, we've talked about some of the, the racial disparities in uh, maternal mental health, but I think it's important to have the broader picture and understand that these racial disparities permeate maternal care. So Black women are two to three times more likely to die in pregnancy or the postpartum year in comparison to white women. Um, they're much more likely to have severe maternal morbidity. They're 50% times more likely to give birth early, such as preterm delivery, and twice as likely to have their infants die at the time of birth in comparison to white women. So, you know, this is, this is a really, it's a global, huge problem in maternal health care that uh, needs to be addressed on, on multiple levels. Depression, anxiety, and problems with substance abuse are the most common complications during pregnancy. That's a heavy statement, and with that, I want to welcome Dr. Gill, Dr. Connie Gill. Welcome to the MUSC Podcast Studio. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yes, yeah, so Connie, I really want to talk about the, the technology that you created, but I think it's important for us to step back and, and talk a little bit about the pain points that you were experiencing. So as, as Kevin stated, um, these problems with mood and anxiety and substance use are incredibly common. So one in five women will experience one of these over pregnancy in the postpartum year. And, you know, oftentimes when I'm seeing these women is a long time after these problems started and it becomes much more complicated and their symptoms are much more severe and their outcomes are a lot worse. And that's why all of our organizations say that we need to be screening for these um, problems early on in pregnancy and throughout the postpartum year. And that just wasn't happening. So... Um, really trying to think about how do we intervene early and identify women and get them what they want um, before things get worse. You said one in five women? Mm -hmm. That is a sobering statistic. And, and honestly, when I read that opening statement, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed that anxiety and depression and substance abuse would have been the, up there as far as problems. And so obviously we want these women and their children to be healthy, but also to thrive. So what I, what I read on one of your papers that you had published was systems of care that improve mental health and substance use disorder, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment for pregnant and postpartum women are needed. So that's the screening part that, that we were talking about. And that needed to be in the forefront. Talk a little bit about the screening process prior to where, where you have arrived now. Sure. So the, one of the problems is that the screening process is really variable depending on where you're getting your OB care or your pediatric care. Um, despite really clear recommendations about how you screen and when you screen. So uh, we're really fortunate at MUSC to have um, a pretty progressive OBGYN and pediatric department. So they were actually already screening and they were using a tool that was um, standardized across the state. So using a great tool, asking the right questions. Um, so that's, we were really fortunate to be in that setting. 
But even in that, I, I hear people doing these screenings and I hear the way they ask the questions and it's it's not always standardized. It's not always the best approach. Um, and when you start veering away from that standardization, you start introducing a lot of biases. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was my first goal was that, okay, let's let's figure out a way to get a system that is hardwired where we're asking the right questions at the right time in the right way. You know, having having had three children myself and and been you know in those situations where you're being asked questions, it's probably very intimidating for mm-hmm. a lot of um, patients who are in either their OB's office or in their pediatrician's office to actually be forthright with those answers because there is a part of us that worries about being judged. And so, I wonder if that was another sort of pain point is that you know these these individuals may be experiencing symptoms and are too, um, are not, are not being candid about it for a whole variety of reasons, you know, that I could only imagine, you know, would sort of be a barrier to actually just actually reaching out for help. Yeah, that is a huge barrier. So stigma is one of the, the probably most potent barrier for patients to acknowledge these issues. Um, so you could ask all the right questions in the right way at the right time, and you could still miss this. So we really had to think about how how do you address stigma? And really, stigma is about um, feeling judged in a negative way. And that comes about when you're sitting face-to-face with somebody and they're asking you this question and you want to put your best self forward. That's just human nature. So we had to think about a different way to ask these questions that were felt like you weren't going to be judged. It was in a private way, in a confidential way. So that's kind of how we landed on the text messaging. So to, to ask all these screening questions in a standardized way and also in a way that people felt an additional layer of, of confidentiality and privacy and not being judged. We ask these questions via text message. And it's also a super efficient way to get this done. Um, It doesn't disrupt workflow um, that's happening in the clinic. Women can do this while they're sitting there waiting for their their doctor to come in or at any point they could do it when they leave the office at home. So, you know, in addition to overcoming that major barrier of stigma and judgment, uh, it was also really efficient and easy to do. And I watched um, some of the material that you provided us, Connie, um, and I was really struck by um, the the black woman who was speaking about how she didn't think that depression and anxiety was something that was allowed in mm. the black community, that she really just thought it was something that only white women suffered, I think, were her words. Um, and I think things like that like really struck me about how many barriers there can be, um, not just about stigma, but even just allowing yourself to... Um, to say that there is a problem in feeling like you are allowed um, to have that. And, and that's a very personal thing. But obviously, there was a cultural piece for for her as well. Um, and I wonder if you see that sort of broadly within your office, that there are these additional cultural barriers that need to be addressed as well. Absolutely. I mean, every culture has a, a thought about what mental illness is and what it means. And you grew up with that. That's all around you. And so that becomes your framework for thinking about these things. And um, I've been told by many black women that depression is a white person disease. I don't have that. And, you know, we, we agree to disagree but it, and, and work through it. But really understanding someone's background and where they're coming from in relation to these issues is, is critically important to even be able to start talking about them. It doesn't really matter what we call it. Um, you know, in the end of the day, we want women to be thriving and doing really well. So um, that's the goal. 
Well, as clinicians, we, you do need to def- make some definitions, obviously. And I wrote down th- uh, three things that I picked up from, from your literature. Perinatal mood and anxiety disorders as one mm-hmm. category. Perinatal substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. And then intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. You think you can break those down a little bit so we can kind of get a, a broader scope of what the problems actually are? Sure. So um, within perinatal mood disorders, we're talking about things like depression and bipolar disorder. Um, In anxiety disorders, there's actually a whole host. So we're talking about generalized anxiety disorder, panic attacks, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, We also talk about some stress-related disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, In substance use, that can be anything from uh, legal to illegal substances. And um, intimate partner violence, unfortunately, Um, Homicide is actually one of the leading causes of mortality in pregnant and postpartum women, and it's typically at the hands of an intimate partner. Uh, So, you know, while that is, you know, intimate partner violence is not a mental health condition, it's obviously um, very important in women's health and can frequently be comorbid, uh, certainly um, in relation to substance use. We see um, a lot of that happening. So, um, so yeah, so these are just the, the questions that we need to, to get at and assess. And I can imagine intimate partner violence being, talk about a stigma. I mean, I'm sure people don't want to talk about that at all. Mm-hmm. So that gets us into, you know, how, how important it is, your, the system that you've built. Um, so we've talked a little bit about racial disparity here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I um, picked up from our conversation prior to this was that black females are significantly less likely to get screened. And we talked a little bit about why that is, but can you expand on that a little bit? Because what I'm hoping for is that, that there will be a large population of people that will hear this, hopefully women who are in this situation, but also maybe people who know someone and maybe didn't understand that there's a hesitance to get screened and to go forward. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, that's a lot to unpack because <laughs> it's, you know, it it is it has to do with a lot of factors. There's patient factors, there's provider factors, and there's system level factors that are all influencing this and um, result in these really significant disparities where we're not asking every single patient the right questions in the right way. And, you know, Jesse already alluded to, like, you know, if you're coming from a culture that doesn't even acknowledge that depression is something or that uh, if you acknowledge depression that you're considered crazy or your child's going to be taken away, uh, fears of really actually real consequences. So that, from a patient level, is going to prevent you from, from acknowledging that. And, and we know there's structural racism within, within medicine and our systems, and so I'm, I'm sure that is a, is a factor as well. Yeah, lack of trust in the system. Absolutely. Well, can you maybe paint us a picture, give us a, a, a typical patient that, that you feel like needs what you're offering? Yeah, so it's always pretty variable, but in the end of the day, what it boils down to is how are you functioning? How are things going in terms of your relationships, in your ability to take care of yourself, to take care of all of your responsibilities, other people, work, academics, whatever is important in your life? How are you doing in those domains? And really just understanding how uh, the symptoms that they might be experiencing in relation to substance use or mood or anxiety, how those are impacting their ability to function. 
So, you know, we obviously have all our criteria for, for what would be a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, but in the end of the day, it's about looking at the impact of those symptoms on someone's functioning. So if you're not able to take care of yourself, if you're not, if things are going really poorly in your relationships, um, if you can't um, function at work or academically, wherever, wherever is the most important part of your life, um, that suggests that there's a problem. Connie, do you ever find that there's a tendency to, to diminish those symptoms as just part of being like, you know, you're supposed to be emotional while pregnant. <laughs> like everyone cries, you know, and, and, yes. and sort of having a hard time distinguishing what that normal emotional variability is while you're pregnant versus what can be extreme and sort of out of the, the, the realm of, of normal, quote unquote. And maybe the, the flip is that, you know, I think sleep deprivation has a huge impact on, on yes. mental health. And at the same time, we recognize that babies don't sleep. And so you are supposed to be tired. You know? <laughs> um, and I feel like there's probably some level of, of acceptance of, of what really is sort of this normal boundary of mm-hmm. when does it become impactful to where you're functioning and not mm-hmm. just quote unquote typical you know pregnancy symptoms. Yeah, it's such a great question because I think that what happens a lot in practice is you'll have this, you know, this symptom come up. Someone's crying in your office. And instead of actually taking a, a look at the whole entire picture, you say, oh, you're depressed, go see the psychiatrist, right? Instead of actually recognizing that what's been happening most of the day, nearly every day um, in this person's life and how um, many other things need to be also going on in order for us to say this is this is a diagnosis of depression. And you have to tease apart what's the normal, you know, physiological processes of pregnancy and postpartum where, as you said, you know, you're not sleeping, you have all these somatic things going on, you know, um, there is tension in relationships. There's a whole change in a dynamic um, in relationships. So it's really teasing apart for each individual. Well, what were things like before? You know, what's your baseline and understanding that and then looking at things now and it's really the the whole picture. So you need to have multiple symptoms. They're occurring most of the day, nearly every day, and it's impacting your functioning. So if you're having a bad day, that should not be depression. The thing that's tricky about this sometimes is that um, when people do experience mood or anxiety disorders, um, they don't always have the insight into how they are feeling or what is going, but they, they don't always see it. And that makes sense because anxiety and depression is, it's a lens. You have looked at the world differently through this lens of anxiety or depression, so you're looking at yourself differently. So a lot of times people don't pick up on it, and um, it's often the partners that come to us and say, hey, something is different here. Um, and that's why friends and family and partners are, are really critical in this um, and, and helping women kind of uh, maybe get some support that they, they're, they're lacking. And maybe they're bringing some depression into their pregnancy to begin with. Yeah. Maybe that's something that they, so, so it's just in their mind, a part of their life anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that, I guess, lands us exactly where we're headed, which is screening. Mm-hmm. Because if the, the answer to your question, Jesse, is that, you know, the, the, the line is determined through accurate screening. Mm-hmm. And you have developed a way to do that. And I want to talk about that next. I was reading your study and yeah. there was a, oh, okay. a, a group before mm-hmm. that was just the standard in the office screening process and yep. then your new way. Walk okay. us through that. Sure. So what was happening um, prior to implementation of, of this program 
was every single patient that was pregnant and coming through prenatal care was asked uh, a specific set of, of eight questions. And if women endorsed any of those, uh, the provider would then do something, what we call a brief intervention. And what that should look like, it's usually a five to 10 minute conversation where you are asking them all the questions about what is going on with their mental health or substance use or whatever it is that they endorsed. You're making kind of an assessment of what that looks like. And then your brief intervention is about helping women to um, find the internal motivation to change whatever behavior it is. So if it's someone who's severely depressed and you're saying, you know, I really think you should make it to this treatment appointment, it's trying to help that woman identify her herself why she would do that. Not not why we would do it, but why she would do it. And so that's your brief intervention. Um, and then you typically make that referral to where they need to go and then hopefully they attend treatment. So that was kind of the process before. So we essentially took that process, and um, instead of asking those questions face-to-face, -face, we used text messaging. So it's kind of the, the, the same workflow where pregnant postpartum women's coming into prenatal care. Uh, we say to them, hey, these conditions are really common. We're going to monitor your mood and anxiety, just like we monitor your, your weight and your blood pressure all through pregnancy. And instead, we're going to do that via text message. And if that's okay with you, we'll enroll you in the system. It's going to be seen by a care coordinator and your provider. And they say, great, well, I'll enroll. So uh, we enroll them in the system. They have those same questions they were asked before via text message. And all of that information data kind of goes through an algorithm. And that provides it for a care coordinator um, who uh, is notified right away as soon as that screening is done. They can look at the information and then they call that patient and they do that that brief intervention that was happening in person, um, but they're doing it by phone and they're also doing it with somebody who really has the background and training to do that really well and effectively. And in, in addition to you know assessing mental health and doing that motivational interviewing, they're also looking at social determinants of health because you could give someone the best referral in the world, but if they can't actually make it there right. due to other factors, um, that's going to be a barrier. So that person is also assessing those things, figuring out what are going to be the barriers as in helping that woman make it to whatever the next step is. Yeah, so that brings us back around to, to the actual quote-unquote innovation um, in, in your solution, Connie. And, and I think as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, one of the reasons that I love this is because it didn't have to be incredibly high-tech to be really impactful. Um, so can you describe a little bit about sort of the accessibility of it and, and why you chose the approach that you did? Because I think that that is actually a really key factor in sort of the overall success of what you've done. Sure. And, you know, I think part of this was looking at prior work that's been done to understand what are the interventions that actually get implemented into practice. So we know that we have really great evidence-based treatments. It can take up to 10 years for them to be uptaken into clinical practice. So the Institute of Medicine does a great job of this and kind of defines those, those variables. So accessibility is number one. And we know 96% of people in our country have a phone. It doesn't have to be a smartphone. It can be literally a flip phone. This is SMS uh, text messaging. So that was the most critical piece is the accessibility. The second piece of this was really the um, end user input. So we talked to patients, we talked to providers, they were the ones that helped us even conceive of this idea and then gave us feedback on it. So you know, if you, if you have your end user in mind, it's something that's gonna be, be utilized. Um, and and they, liked the, they liked the phone, they liked the text messaging, they liked that they could just reach out so easily and have contact with somebody. So it was that, that, that perfect, perfect technology for this. 
Yeah, I think that end user feedback is really important. If you look at you know big corporations that we think of as, as you know successful, even with their high tech products, you know they call it voice of customer feedback, and they integrate it sort of all along. And and that design with the user in mind is always sort of a critical piece. You know, you never want to presume that you know how people want to be approached. And so, right. I applaud you that you work that into your um, actual design and, and solicited feedback from those who you were going to be serving, right? And so the question then is, is it successful? And we have some data on that. Um, One of the things we did when we were prepping for the show was talk a little bit about that. And one of the things that stood out to me was the screening rates of of black women versus white women Mm -hmm. prior to this was, what, what were the numbers there, roughly? Where we really saw some significant racial disparities was with in-person screening, where black women were less likely to make it to treatment in comparison to white women. Um, with um, with the, the system that we use, which is called listening to pregnant and postpartum people, um, the there were no differences in black and white women making it to treatment. And they were significantly likely, like five times more likely, both black and white women to make it to treatment. Wow. The disparities between black and white women just flattened out. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. We were super, super excited. It's a big deal. Everybody has a phone. And, you know, the, the talking of stigma, I, I find sometimes it's easier to text something to somebody than it is to talk right to their face. And so you're giving everyone the opportunity to do exactly that and to get really honest with some struggles they're having. That's innovation if there ever was innovation. I, I definitely agree. <laughs> Thanks. So Connie, like, We've talked a little bit about the simplicity of the text messaging and how that made it really accessible for the patients um, and for the providers who were um, reaching out to them. Um, But I'm sure that behind the scenes, it's much more complex than just getting a couple yes or no's to to the text message prompts. And so um, how did you handle the data that you were getting in in order to appropriately determine, you know, who needed to be reached out to and who who didn't? Because, like I said, I'm I'm sure it's way more complex than, than and what it sounds on the surface. Well, I mean, the, the good thing is that we have these standardized screening tools that um, we can use to determine who's screening positive and who might have some at-risk um, behaviors that they're endorsing. So it, it's it was really just thinking clinically and putting that into an algorithm. Um, so uh, one of the things that the program does that I, I really like, which is better than the, that in-person eight-question screens, is we've got a few more questions in there. Um, and if you tick those off, that's going to take you to another survey, and that's going to give us a little more information. So um, that information kind of goes through an algorithm and puts people in clinical risk categories. And why that's helpful is because you know who to reach out to first. If someone is screening really high for depression or high-risk substance use, um, clinically you want to talk to them to them first. Um, but it also provides a, a huge amount of, it, it makes it streamlined for the care coordinator, right? So they can very easily see that. But if they want to go in and look and see what all those responses are too, which are all the questions you would ask that person anyway, you have all that information and data collected. So. What that then does is you call this person and you already know so much, right? You don't have to rehash things. You're kind of like, look, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing where you are um, and kind of reflecting that back to the person, which helps engage them and streamlines the whole process. So, you know, usually a brief intervention takes five to 10 minutes. We've got it down to two and a half to three minutes. 
And I would imagine that that makes it so much more uh, adoptable mm-hmm. um, and implementable for other providers who have busy practices who probably love the elegantness of the solution, you know, to be able to implement something by text message and then have an algorithm help them, you know, prioritize the patients that they need to reach out to. So it's not just adding on to to their to their workload. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's one of the other big factors is, you know, something does not get into clinical practice unless it's efficient. So you either need to be optimizing a workflow or, you know, replacing something that was not working. So where do we go from here, Connie? So so you have a tremendous amount of data showing that it works here. Um, I think you've done it mostly largely as sort of a research study, you know, proving a, a hypothesis, if you will, um, that you set out to to do. So how do you take it from, you know, a research study that's hypothesis driven into a tool that we can deploy more broadly? Look, what's your vision for that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I think this is the research part of my brain. I, I think that we can always do more research. So, um, you know, we've, we've tested this in a certain setting and it would be really important to know how this does in different settings. So in a rural setting or with a base, different patient demographic. So I think that's still key information that we need to have in order to effectively implement and scale. Um, the other thing that we need is that this needs to be a billable service. So it, and it is a clinical service and in, in person you can bill for this. You can bill for screening, you can bill for brief interventions, and that is enough to sustain that work. And so we need to be able to do that with text and phone. So if it is a billable, sustainable service, um, then we, we want to be able to offer this to practices and, and help them out with this process. So does this not fit within the buckets of what is already a billable service code? So that's what we're working with Medicaid on right now okay. um, and talking through those those things and what where this does fit in because it, it is different in a lot of ways than some other yeah. um, uh, monitoring. So uh, we're just trying to, to figure out if, if there's something in existence that it could fit into because that's a much easier um, approach. Um, and if not, then we've already talked about maybe this is a, a different sort of carve out. So um, we're working through those things right now. But as soon as you could get that as a billable service, then the scalability becomes um, becomes great. Yeah, I think that actually touches upon an interesting point about our ability as a health system nationally to actually roll out really good interventions and how dependent it is upon insurance companies being willing to pay for them. Um, and, and I know oftentimes in my role, we're looking at, is there already a billing code associated <laughs> with it? And sometimes that that can make or break mm-hmm. um, whether or not a, a good technology actually makes it forward, which in a way is a shame, right? That, mm-hmm. that sometimes good ideas uh, don't move because there's no way to collect um, insurance payments for it or that path seems too long and too arduous to get to. Um, I think it's an interesting conundrum that we have as a society, particularly in a, in a you know, wealthy first world nation like we live in that we're still sort of hamstrung by insurance billing codes, if you will. Right. All right, Dr. Gill, let's look into the future. What, how do you see this being implemented? Like if you if you could have your way two years, three years out, what would it look like on a national level? Gosh, that's so exciting to think about. Um, so I would love every single OBGYN practice and pediatric practice and delivery hospital be able to offer this to their patients. And I really hope that we can be systematically collecting data to demonstrate the benefit to women's health, to children's health, and that this really um, is improving uh, women's lives and families' lives. 
and some of the most vulnerable women and families yeah. as well. So, yeah. All right, Dr. Gill, let's talk about some next steps then. We have kind of dreamed for the future, but what's happening right here, right now? What can we look forward to? Yeah, so we are really excited about this because one of the things we recognize is that we could integrate screening into routine practice, but that requires a woman to actually make it to, sure, to routine right. clinical care, and that's not always the case. Um, so we really want to have a way for women to directly refer themselves if they're struggling with mental health or substance use or intimate partner violence. And so in May, we're going to be launching a program um, that is essentially a perinatal psychiatry access program. So if you're a pregnant or postpartum woman um, struggling with any of these conditions, you literally can pick up the phone and you would be connected to a care coordinator that would do that same assessment that I talked about um, with the other program. And what they would do if needed is get you uh, an appointment in 30 minutes with a perinatal psychiatrist to get evaluated and treatment started and, and continued if needed. So uh, in that program, we will then also enroll that women, those women into the, the listening to pregnant and postpartum people um, so that they'll continue to be monitored over that critical window of pregnancy in the postpartum year. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Gill, you have given us a lot to think about today, and you've given us a lot of hope, and you have highlighted one of the things we say a lot around here, which is changing what's possible. You are certainly changing what's possible with your work, so we just want to say thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I'll just echo that, Connie. Um, it's really great to have you on and to be able to showcase the work that you're doing and, and the importance of it and the impact that you're having. And I'm proud that you get to be the inaugural guest on, on this podcast. Well, I'm honored and thrilled. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks, Kevin. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.